friends, and welcome once again to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Matt. I'm Crystal. I'm Sylvia. I'm Vera. I'm Alex. This week, we're going to take up Chapter 4 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, entitled At Flourish and Blots. But before we jump into our discussion, I just wanted to remind you that you can always get in contact with us through our email address, hpbcfanmail at gmail.com, or through Twitter or Instagram, where our handles are at hpbcpodcast. To kick off our discussion of Chapter 4 of Chamber of Secrets, we're going to throw it to Vera. Yeah. So we uh, we start out, we're still at the borough, and we just see, again, like we talked about in our um, in our last podcast, how this family, the Weasleys, are such a fool for the Dursleys. This is... This is a family that feels like a family and treats Harry like family, even though they're not his blood. Um, and so he's he's being fussed over by Mrs. Weasley. She's trying to make him have fourth helpings. And Mr. Weasley wants him to sit next to him at dinner and ask him questions. It's just genuinely cared for. Um, and we also see they all get their Hogwarts letters together while they're still at the borough. So we see that it is almost all Gilderoy Lockhart books. And they're all alliterative, which makes me really happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is going to be a very expensive year for the Weasleys. They've got a new Weasley coming in. Jenny's going to Hogwarts for the first time. And then there are still four brothers at Hogwarts. She'll need all new stuff. And they have to get all these new books. And, um, yeah, so we'll see see later some more when we finally get to their vault. Some more about how truly poor the Weasleys are. But I, I just love the way that Harry always is, the way that he reacts to people's poverty is very sweet. Like, he never calls attention to it, but he is somewhat embarrassed by his wealth. And then he always uses his wealth to benefit others, which we'll see later when we're in. Well, and it's also a, I mean, a surprising wealth because, like, I mean, he did nothing really to earn that. I mean, right. he, he came into this money and, um, you know, he's grown up thinking that, you know, his parents, I guess, left him nothing and he has nothing to really remember them by. And so this is just uh, him getting into the wizarding world, you know, and uh, you're right. I mean, he he we'll get into it a little bit more, but you know, he he's a little embarrassed. And in fact, when they go and visit in Gringotts, you know, he's trying to get them out of there because it's obvious that they clean out their bank accounts. The Weasleys do just to pay for the school supplies. Yeah. Well, Harry has this like unique position too, where he has actually experienced poverty. Like maybe not in the way that we think about it without without having money, but at the Dursleys, he he was he was in poverty. Like he experienced the symptoms of poverty. He was Mm -hmm. neglected, which is often a symptom, not always, but often a symptom of it because you've got parents who are working multiple jobs trying to work, but also hunger. Like he was hungry there. This, um, just like a general lack of insecurity or lack of security. So many of those things are associated with poverty. So while he hasn't actually, he, I mean, the Dursleys had plenty of money, but you know, he, he was hungry while Mm -hmm. living at the Dursleys. And he says, I, I don't know which book it is, but he says, you know, the Dursleys never exactly starved me, but I've never they, been allowed to have what, whatever did. I want, third or fourth helpings of things. So he, in some ways, he can identify with mm-hmm. the Weasleys because he has experienced this in some ways. And I, I think the Weasleys are, I mean, obviously the kids know that they're 
they don't have as much money as like the Malfoys, but the parents here, I really admire like <clears throat> Mrs. Weasley. She says, you know, oh, we'll manage. And the kids are, they know something is, some, they know that these books are expensive, but it's, the parents aren't like, well, we can't afford this. You know, they, mm-hmm. they kind of shelter their kids, which I really commend the Weasleys here for doing. And it's, <clears throat> I don't, you know, we know that the Weasleys are poor, but the kids are so happy and healthy and well-adjusted, and they're always, you know, like later we see they have like half a dozen bacon sandwiches each. Like they're not, yeah. they're not hungry. Right. They're not really wanting for anything. They just don't have the best of everything. Right. Which is actually character building, in yes. my opinion. <clears throat> it is. It's interesting to me also, though, that while we'll see them clear out their vault for books and other supplies, there's no question about whether or not these kids are going to all be able to attend Hogwarts. Right. You know? it's That does not seem to come up. It does not seem to be an issue whether or not, well, Ginny, you know, we could afford it for Bill and Charlie and the other ones, but... Sorry, like money's run out, and like you're not going to be able to finish your seven. It's like no, like of course she's going to go, and of course she's going to be able to, you know, get the same high quality education that the Malfoy kids get. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got a question actually. <laughs> um, do we do they have to actually pay to go to Hogwarts? I, the, don't, the, I don't know anything never, about tuition at Hogwarts. Yeah, they never we really talk about discuss it. it. So but it's a boarding school, like yeah. you would think. So the Where, only where's all that food coming from? Right? That's a lot of food every day. Food. The only indication whatsoever is in book six, Half Blood Prince, whenever Dumbledore is telling Tom Riddle about going to Hogwarts, and he's like, "How will I afford this?" Essentially, and Dumbledore's like, "Well, there's a fund to help with these things." And he's, mm-hmm. I think he's talking about supplies specifically, but I have to assume that it also relates scholarships to or yeah, thing. scholarships or boarding or people that donate money so others can go or their secondhand things. And I even wondered, like, why are the Weasleys not tapping into that? I mean, maybe they are, and we just don't see it. <laughs> but yeah. there, if there's if there any if there is any family that we meet that should be tapping into that, it's the Weasleys. <laughs> I do appreciate the point that you brought up at the beginning, Vera, about um, it's not just a foil. It's a very precise foil that the Weasleys offer to the Dursleys. Um, In those two sentences at the bottom of page 42 that you referenced, it's Miss Weasley fussing over his clothing and forcing him to eat fourth helpings. So clothing and food, which is the opposite of what... um, Mrs. Dursley was doing, and then Mr. Weasley having Harry in physical proximity to Mm. him over meals, whereas the whole um, sense we get from Vernon Dursley is that he can't have Harry farther away. Mm -hmm. So there's physical provision, but also a kind of physical intimacy that each of the characters in the Weasley household are offering Mm -hmm. and then when you get to the siblings there's there's laughter and love whereas all he has had is well i guess a kind of laughter but mocking laughter from Mm -hmm. dudley um and hatred if not outright indifference at times which you know could be even worse from a relational standpoint and violence yes (laughs) violence all around Yeah. yeah Well, this is kind of Harry's first look at an actual functional 
functioning family. Like the Dursleys, they're a functioning family, but Harry adds this element that makes them sort of dysfunctional because they have to constantly hide him or they can't, They even the Dursleys can't be their true selves because of Harry. Hmm. And so this is his first experience I mean, I love even the little details, like the twins are in their pajamas at the table. Like, there's just things that are so intimate and sweet about that moment that Harry has never seen. Mm-hmm. I, I also had a question about the book list that they have. How come there's eight books on there and seven of the eight are from Lockhart? Like, do they really not need any other books? That's what I'm is wondering, too. Yeah, like, is that all you need? It's all defense against... The dark arts. Yeah. But I'm wondering if charms, transfiguration, all of these things are covered in the standard book of spells. Yeah. But then you've got herbology Mm -hmm. and, you know, potions, which (coughs) are not spells, which clearly have their own textbooks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it does raise questions about. I mean, to me, you know, and maybe this is looking a little bit too far into it. It's like. Maybe the teachers, the other teachers besides Lockhart, were making more economical decisions for the children, you know. And then Lockhart, I mean, it's obvious we'll get into him because I can't wait to get into him. But uh, when he puts things on the reading list, I mean, it's all of his books. So, like, he's basically, they're forced to buy these books and it's about him getting, you know, uh, uh, money, prestige, you know, whatever it is. And they're not even books about, like, here's how you actively defend yourself right. against dark magic. It's like, this is how other people have defended themselves at dark mag- about dark magic and the stories about this happening that I've, you know. And just a funny detail, I love that the title, they're all organized alphabetically uh-huh. mm-hmm. on the reading list. So it's almost as if, it wasn't like, which ones are best for yeah. you? It's like, no... You're going to get all of them, and here they are in alphabetical yeah. order from, you know, break with a banshee all the way to year with the yeti. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really does have the sense that it's his entire body mm-hmm. of work, which that could get us into a discussion of, you know, university professors requiring that you purchase their yeah. own $95 textbook right. for you a course. You just think but... that Dumbledore would step in and be sensitive to the cost. I mean, yeah. that's a lot to have no restraint on it but yet again it's sort of like Dumbledore is the passive observer. Well you think Dumbledore would step in in the hiring process. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what I well, thought Well nobody too. else nobody else wanted the job. Hmm. Hagrid know, says nobody know, else wanted the job. We know one teacher wanted the job. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I it's think just, it's a little inconsiderate of Dumbledore to not put well, a budget on that the, the yeah. book per teacher ratio. I think it's a little inconsiderate of Dumbledore to have a nincompoop Mm -hmm. (laughs) teaching teaching the children when clearly Dumbledore knows. I mean, he can see through this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's not fooled. But that, I suppose, goes to uh, Dumbledore's strategy that we have talked about at length, where he's not going to guard students from hardship Mm -hmm. or danger. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think that's an interesting point about not stepping in as headmaster to control financial expenses, mm-hmm. um, because that is a, a burden on entire families, um, and not just a sort of character building challenge right. for the children. Yeah. Um, 
Also, I know we were talking about the Weasleys being poor, but they're also a bunch of high achievers. I mean, we get into owls, which are the ordinary wizarding levels, and you know, you've got uh, what is it, Bill and Charlie? You know, who did very well. I think Bill said they got twelve owls, and then Percy comes in and does twelve owls. They're, they're head boy, you know, like so they've got a great bit of intelligence going on and the Weasleys do mm-hmm. even though even Fred and George are very oh, smart. Yeah, yeah. They're street smart, but they're very smart. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We also we have some foreshadowing here with Percy yes. shut up in his room. Mm-hmm. Um we'll learn more about that later. I did wonder like though, what is he doing? I mean why is he just shut it I mean we know he's got a girlfriend. I mean, we know that because of the end of the book. So is he just writing to her all day? I think that was the implication. Like, Harry really only later. sees him at mealtimes. Is he just in there studying about power? I don't know. This is a well, weird I, I, again, act for me. Again, yeah. it, it doesn't make sense to me in that, like, if he is, I mean, if he does want power, and obviously I think in this chapter he gets caught reading, you know, Re- prefects, yeah. prefects who, gave who, who, have, power, who have gained power. You know, wouldn't what a ha- creepy title! Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, it, I mean, it is. gosh, not just like <laughs> prefects who achieved excellence or great prefects of history or something, yeah. but prefects who gained power. Yeah, like, but but not only like I would think he would want to hang out with Harry. I mean, Harry is obviously somebody that the Wizarding world yeah. respects. I mean, not, nothing Talk that Harry did. Can get power. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, like he, Harry's famous, uh, and so I'm just it, it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't jive with me. Yeah, that's true. It's also odd because those are all Slytherin characteristics. So I know that ultimately Percy comes back and he's brave, but it seems that his nature is Slytherin. Slytherin is very mm-hmm. Slytherin. Yeah, knows. it's like he was just sorted into Gryffindor by default. Oh, you're a Weasley. Mm, yeah. Well, but there is. I mean, he does ultimately though show his Gryffindor characteristics. It's sort of like Neville. Like Neville probably shouldn't have been a Gryffindor, but in the end, maybe the Sorting Hat took a while to sort Percy too. We don't know, but. Mm-hmm. There are characteristics that make him Gryffindorish too. I think. Yeah. You do wonder though uh, about the dynamics between children and parents that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley are struggling so financially, and yet it seems like Charlie and Bill, who are doing, you know, rather significant forms of mm-hmm. wizarding work. I mean, Bill works for Gringotts, um, so he's in wizarding finance. I mean, like, yeah. Wizard Wall Street. Definitely doesn't <laughs> not pay well. Yeah, I mean, it, he at least ought to make ends meet. And so you wonder about, you know, what's going on there with the family not coming together mm-hmm. to help contribute financially. Of course, yeah. that could be going on in the background, and we just aren't privy to it because we have a limited narratival perspective but or the weasley parents refuse to accept it and they just say listen this is yours and we don't want i mean they don't want charity and they probably want their kids to thrive yeah yeah that's a good point but it would be hard especially when the money that you need to help your other children thrive and not to accept that you know what i mean like yeah it's like let me pay for this for my younger brother my younger sister that seems like something they could accept yeah is this the first time we hear about Bill and Charlie working in this way? No. No? Okay. We already know that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we knew lots about Charlie in the last book because of right. uh, Norbert. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 
And I think Harry I think mentions, mentions what they're doing well. when he first meets, or sorry, Ron mentions what they're doing when he first meets Harry. Yeah. Cool. Well, can we get into Diagon uh, yeah, Alley? Flu powder well, I, yeah, we got to do flu powder. Yeah. So, where do where does flu powder come from? Does anybody know that? What do you mean? Like, how did yeah, like as an idea? Like, where I mean, who makes it? Like, like is what, it organic? Is, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Harry does swallow <laughs> a lot of ash. I'm thinking it's from the flu powder. You know, is that long term? No, it's from the. It's from the. It's a fireplace. Well, I know, but like he's throwing the he's throwing the flu powder down, and I'm thinking like all of it's erupting. Like. I was thinking that it moved yeah, the ash, and the ash oh, came up okay. in his face. Well, maybe that's what it is. Still not good for the lungs. Not good. Yeah, no. probably not. Yeah, well, they don't really get into flu powder and how it's made or anything like that. The Wikipedia says Ooh. that it was invented by Ignatio Wildsmith around 1227, Ooh. or sorry, who lived from 1227 to 1320, um, and. So that it makes me think this is this is stuff that's just been around forever. I mean, this has must have been part and parcel of wizarding travel. I mean, for eight centuries now. That's that's extraordinary. So I didn't actually know until about a year ago that there was an actual part of the fireplace called a flu. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting with my family, and she said something along the lines of like something to do with the flu in the fireplace and I was like wait the flu like Harry Potter and she was super confused and then I realized that that's an actual thing so that's where it comes from Hmm. didn't know that so we're running out of flu powder which is another another thing they're gonna have to buy it is super cheap though it right. seems to be yeah. <laughs> two sickles a scoop. Yeah, that's what the Pottermore says. J.K. said on Pottermore uh, regarding flu powder. Apparently, its prices remained constant for the last two hundred years, that's which good. is quite a statement about that the is... nature of inflation yeah, wow. in yeah. the Wizarding World. If the price of an everyday commodity that's impressive has been consistent for two hundred years, mm-hmm. I mean that's sorry, that's extraordinary. So why? I, my question in this whole scene is why can't they? go together. Like, why can't they, mm. like, you know, apparition or oh, like, side like port apparate? key. I why? think there's just not enough of them that can apparate. Well, okay, so, but here, it, we get the idea that Jenny and Mrs. Weasley are together. Like, she sends everybody along in front of them, and then she and Jenny are left behind, so you're telling me that this little 11-year-old girl is going by herself? Probably not. Mm, I, I mean, maybe. I mean, it seems like they've, they've all been traveling this way for a long time. They each take a pinch, they throw it in the fire. But why couldn't in. you why couldn't someone just say, like, here Harry, I'll go with you, grab my arm. Right. You can just the every size, other way. Size of the fireplace. The size of the fireplace. Okay, but then in book four, whenever the Dursleys they open Dur- the Dursleys fireplace for the Weasleys to travel through, they're all stuck there because the they fireplace has been once. boarded up. But they but do did, come one at a they time. They do yeah, come one at a time, but obviously time. size isn't an issue because all these Weasleys are sitting there in this one spot. Uh, so. But it's uncomfortable. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but two people could go for sure if, like, seven Weasleys could well, five Weasleys. We do not specifically know the magical properties of flu powder. Maybe it only allows for one I'm just saying that doesn't make sense because every other way of magical travel, you can double up. I, I think that's a very interesting point. Hmm. But clearly... It was narratively useful. Yeah, of you course. Can only go Everything one at a time. that we discuss we, is narratively <laughs> useful. We, we, we often go back to that. It's like, 
well, maybe there was another way, but it sure did make for a nice story. Yeah, right. That's right. Because you can't get lost if you went with Mr. Weasley. Right. Because diagonally... <laughs> that is a genius. Did not sound I know. Like... That was really clever yeah. in the movie. In but the movie, that is genius. Because he just says diagon alley. Like, yeah. it's still separate words. He just stumbles a little bit in the book. But that was really smart in the movie yeah. for him to say diagonally. And he yeah. does, like, like slide into the fireplace diagonally, too. Yeah. So... Yeah. <clears throat> so Obviously, it goes horribly awry. Harry ends up in a very wrong place. So can, he's... can we talk, though, about the the physical experience yeah. of mm. wizarding travel? Yeah, I thought about There's that, There's literally no good way yeah. to travel as a wizard, except by broom. I mean, our, our descriptions of apparition are horrifically uncomfortable yeah mm-hmm. flu powder he feels like he's being sucked down a giant drain seeming <laughs> to spin very fast the bacon sandwiches are churning inside of him mm. he closes his eyes wishing it would stop so you have to wonder like is it is it worth it right you know i i suppose it is and i suppose you could get physically used to the sensation all the people who are operating seem to but it does seem yeah. Awfully well, disoriented. I mean, to, me, to me, it seems like, you know, the old adage, all magic comes with a price. You're going to get somewhere fast. It's not going to be comfortable. And so that's how it is every mode of transportation that they have that's not, like, slow, like our modes of transportation, is very uncomfortable to do. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to get there fast, but you're going <laughs> to be covered in soot, and you're going to be sick <laughs> a little bit. Is the night but? Is the night bus? The night bus is crazy yeah, fast crazy. And, and nonsensical. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's nonsensical and it's kind of weird. But there are like people sleeping in the bed. But also, yeah, but their beds are like, yeah, the beds are. But like, do we? Around. Yeah, they're. Yeah, I guess that maybe yes, maybe they're just kind of in, okay. I'm not. I'm not remembering uh, the description of port key travel at the moment. Oh, is it also so very, yeah, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Is that the one with the jerk behind the navel? Yes, that's exactly right. The hook in your belly button. That, yeah. I, that just makes me hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, doesn't that that's sound that, awful? That's that description. Yeah. Well, he's even got it. Here he's got to keep his eyes open too because he's supposed to be looking to for see, Fred yeah. and George. Right. So it's like, going. imagine spinning super fast and also keep your eyes open. You and, can't even close your eyes. And he knocked his elbow again. I mean, I'm guessing the inside of a... Yeah, which... Through personal experience, we're not going to go there, but can have long-lasting consequences. Now it felt as though cold hands were slapping his face. Yeah, what is that supposed to be? I I don't get the cold hands. I think it's air from the passing other fireplaces. Mm. Cold air coming in, but it's that's also something I wanted to get into because it says when he has his he squints his eyes open. And there's a blurred stream of fireplaces, and he uh, snatched glimpses of the rooms beyond. So, like, he's, is he actually able to see into these rooms? Yes. Um, what about privacy? I here? know. You know? I, I wrote like, that down. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little What's crazy. What's to stop you from just, like, entering someone else's home or another shop? I know. Right. Nothing. It's why Mundungus it like Fletcher it. has such a lucrative business. <laughs> yeah. He's like, there's so many ways yeah. to rob people. <laughs> <laughs> I can just show up in your fireplace. Yeah, it does seem like there would be some sort of security for that for a flu for a flu network, but right. it also does not seem like there is any. Right. Like even at this. Yeah. Um, I mean, even even at the ministry, until they start to crack down on security, there's that's not, right. Not really any security on the flu network. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Until they limit it. Right. Crazy. It's really crazy. Did not think of the security aspects at all. Yeah. Before you mentioned that. Yeah, because you can see into all these rooms, and if you step out, you're there. Yeah. Whew. It's crazy. 
So he falls forward, face forward, onto cold stone and feels the bridge of his glasses snap. Again. Well, Again. he breaks his glasses. He's always place. breaking his glasses. Uh, so he gets up and he's in a very creepy place. Dimly lit, large wizard shop. Um, so I, lo- I love the creepy descriptions we get in Borgen O'Burke. So a, cl- a glass case nearby held a withered hand on a cushion, a blood-stained pack of cards, and a staring glass eye. Okay, so we know about one of those things. What are the other two things? We don't and about do them. we have any speculation? I mean, the staring glass eye feels a little bit like a precursor for Mad Eye Moody's yeah. eye. Ah, good yeah, thought. Magical eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bloody pack of cards. And I can see Mad Eye Moody buying. <laughs> yeah, we don't know anything about the cards. But there are like there are other items in Borgen and Burks that come back later, which is oh, really definitely. cool. Um, human bones, all kinds of rusty spiked instruments, very creepy. And he's about to leave, and then two people show up. Yeah, he's in this super creepy place, and then who should show up but Draco Malfoy? Two very creepy people. Yeah. And this, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time we actually do meet Lucius, Lucius. Malfoy. Right? Yes. This Lucius. Is a, this is his, his grand entrance. Yes. And Harry looks quickly around and spots a large black cabinet to his left, and he hides in there. Fortunately, <laughs> he did not it's, vanish. Yeah, it's broken, right? <laughs> it's broken, so he didn't show up in the room of requirement. What a weird twist that would have been. Yeah. I'm at Hogwarts already, guys. Went. Went. So Malfoy comes in. Draco and uh, Lucius have a very similar sort of look. Same pale pointed face, identical cold gray eyes. Mm-hmm. I do really like the way they uh, had Jason Isaacs with the long hair, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. really good. And that was a good call. Uh, I the when they come into the shop, um, I, it, this is one of those things where you know we we know like Malfoy has been a jerk um, in uh, the last book, you know, and now you kind of get the, a, a much clearer picture of Malfoy and like almost where he gets it from, mm-hmm. um, and it's almost as if you know like Malfoy's uh, manner is his mannerisms are you know, they're taught. You know, uh, he, he has learned this from his father. Yes. And uh, his, his, I mean, presumably his family, but definitely his father. Yeah, it's it's this weird dichotomy, I think, because his, his father, he's not, he's spoiled in a way because he does get the best of everything, mm-hmm. but he's also treated as though he doesn't deserve any of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting sort of... Because he he's he think he's very entitled and he thinks that he deserves things, yeah. and then his father puts him down, yeah. almost immediately. Constantly. Yeah, don't touch anything. Well, that and... though adds, and we've talked about it before. It adds to the complexity of Draco's character. Yeah, that he's not just pompous mm-hmm. because he's entitled. He's pompous in a sense because he's trying to prove to himself and to others that he's worthy. Yeah. It's like the uh, imitation of his father's mannerisms aren't mm-hmm. just a matter of walking in the family resemblance. They're also like a, a an, an attempt to show his dad, look, mm-hmm. I can be like you. Yeah. I am one of you. Uh, but this sort of combination of spoiled, you know, grossly wealthy entitlement with emotional deprivation Mm -hmm. uh, creates a really, really complex person in terms of 
motivational structures for his character. Yes. Um, I, I have a thought on this, and this is way, way jumping ahead, but I recently had the chance to see Cursed Child, um, which was epic. And uh, one of the things that comes up is what kind of father Draco is. And I think in a lot of ways he is uh, seeking to do it very differently. Um, he, he truly does love um, his son and want to accept him. And um, while he's kind of, he flounders through it sort of awkwardly, I think he, he deliberately does things a different way um, and, and seeks to love and accept his son. I have a question about Lucius's name. Mm -hmm. Lucius is derived from the word for light. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if off the top of your heads, you all can think of any reason why such a stereotypically dark character would have a name uh, whose meaning connotes light or brightness. I mean, he is pale, yeah, and he has white this. hair. Yeah. And so there is kind of a physical contrast between the darkness of their wardrobe, the darkness of their home, the darkness of their character, and the light that literally his body exudes. Mm -hmm. But I'm... I, I looked up Draco's name as well, and it means dragon or mm -hmm. serpent. Um, so I was wondering, is there sort of light-darkness contrast going on with their two names? Uh, but Draco's name meaning didn't sort of fall in line with that. So throwing that out there for you guys. Well, um, one thought I, I had because of the connection with Draco and dragon or serpent mm. lucius to lucifer mm. yeah and mm. which there you, go. you know lucifero light bringer mm -hmm. um the sort of angel of light right motif exactly yeah fair of face but black of heart mm -hmm. kind of mm. yeah no i, I, I like think that. that i mean in that that web of associations, I think, makes really good sense. Yeah, and I, I think that's one thing. I, I think they do a good job. I know you you noted it earlier, but I think that's one thing they really bring out well in the movies too. I mean, like, oh, yeah. like these that hair that hair is gorgeous. <laughs> um, but like, it's you know it contains many secrets. The hair, <laughs> the person. The person. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I also really like this characterization, and I didn't notice it before, I don't know if it's just this scene that she decided to do this, Draco speaks with so much italics oh, in this does. scene. And I could just hear, you know, Tom Felton going, stupid Potter's so famous, <laughs> boomstick, so smart, you know, and like, it's just, it's just the way that, like, snotty, whiny kids talk. I'm like, stupid yeah. I just, I love the way she did that. Well, it also, I mean, you can see he's a little obsessed, you know, I mean, with Harry Potter and maybe mm -hmm. beating him. And I'm thinking, you know, probably at home, his his father, I mean, who has great ties to Voldemort, you know, Harry Potter is somebody who's probably consistently thrown down, yet uh, at the same time, like, he feels like Harry Potter is better than him in all these other ways. And so, you know, he, he completely trashes Harry, you know, to his father. And I mean, I think his father even probably looks down on that. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're above even this, you know, you shouldn't mm -hmm. even be thinking about such a, a person as Harry Potter. 
Well, he says that you have told me this at least a dozen times mm-hmm. already with a quelling look at his son. Yeah. You know, almost like not only are you annoying me by being repetitive, but you're clearly obsessed mm-hmm. with this other figure. Yeah. Then he reminds him that it is not prudent to appear less than fond of Harry Potter in the cultural climate that yeah. they're operating in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting and and the reason that Malfoy's come to Borgen and Burks is to sell some less than uh, less than savory items that he has in his manner in case the ministry he talks comes about like call. poison and yeah, yeah poisons is yeah, primarily what he lists interesting because he mentions like that it would be bad because because of the he mentions it I guess right after the Muggle Protection mm-hmm. Act right so it's like what poisons are specifically geared toward Muggles yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's I think that's exactly the implication that he has certain poisons that are specifically like you don't get hurt if you're a magical being, but mm-hmm. you would get hurt if you're a muggle, which is like that is some creepy stuff. Yeah, yeah. like almost leftovers from Voldemort's first rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we know he has some leftovers from anyway because he has the diary. Right. Well, also, I can just see when he says, I'm not buying today, I'm, I'm selling, you know, it's basically telling Borgen that, no, you're going to buy what I give you. You know, I mean, it's his, his, his mannerisms are just dripping with, I guess, just elite. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, there's no that, question that you're yeah, going to take. Yeah, like, you're taking my stuff. Yeah. But um, also, Borgen buys very unsavory items anyway, so... Yeah. yeah, but he then he has no discretion as a shop owner, you yeah. know, that you just have to take because I'm Malfoy and you're going to take everything. Mm-hmm. No. Borgen and Burks, the way it always was in my own head, it, it always felt very much like a pawn shop because you have all these kind of different items, some kind of weird, you know, but at the same time, you know, people can both buy and sell. Yeah. What was, what do you guys think of this? establishment is it more of an antique i thought of it as an antique yeah more antiques as well is what i was when it's like he gets these these crazy dark you know items and you know they're obviously very old and they've been around a long time and they can do all kinds of extremely dark things um that you know i guess uh in most circles you know would not be allowed or they you know would not they you not even talk about this this kind of stuff well, and we know from book six that Tom Riddle is employed mm-hmm. as someone who's not merely a sort of pawnbroker. Right. He's he's almost like a very dark but classy separator. He he separates people from their valuables. Uh. He goes into the home of this wealthy witch, trying to you know uh, see what she has. So he's doing sort of house call solicitations to, yeah. you know, get these antique pieces with dark properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. You would never expect a pawnbroker's associate or assistant to go into somebody's home. Mm. You always bring things to the broker. I only thought of that because... I also thought of the pawnbroking idea because I, I wondered whether or not Lucius expects to be able to buy these items back or not. You know, mm-hmm. he, yeah. he clearly wants to get rid of them for now. Mm. But do we do we expect that Lucius really wants to leave control of them forever? I don't I don't think so. Yeah, I don't but. know. I, 
I get I get the feeling from this whole this whole sort of interaction with with Borgen and with the way he talks to to Malfoy about trying to be, you know, trying to be civil to Harry Potter that the we that the um, Malfoys are kind of underground. They're sort of having to, you know, keep keep under wraps their feelings and their leanings because of the current climate. And it does feel temporary. You know, there's a lot of stuff in that manner. And it's not like he's changing his way of life. He's not getting rid of all of it. Well, yeah, it, it sounds like when, you know, they leave the shop and Borgen, you know, says like, you know, you you sold me, you know, some of this Less stuff. But like, I, of, yeah. and that's not even half of what's really in your house. Right. And it sounds like, yeah, Lucius or the Malfoys have some really dark stuff and he's just getting rid of the things that are most obvious that, mm -hmm. you know, the ministry may check and, you know, he would be incriminated by, you know, just owning like, what would you need these poisons for, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and so he's just getting rid of that stuff right now. Right. So back to the names. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but I'm sitting here pondering this. I think, I think the Lucifer association, angel of light, um, almost a satanic association mm -hmm, is absolutely mm -hmm. on par because Draco's name means dragon or serpent, which is constant biblical imagery for, for Satan mm -hmm. uh, and for the, the powers of darkness in general. And then of course, Voldemort is the Satan figure par excellence who actually looks snake-like in his appearance, which all of that matches up with Harry as a Christ figure, which we haven't talked about a lot up to this point. It really comes out in the later books in some pretty obvious ways. But even at the beginning, I think we can start to see that a lot of our descriptions of Harry's upbringing are Christ figure-esque, born yeah. in into humble circumstances, um, and then has a, a kind of uh, public unveiling um, after his a, a sort of growing up maturing experience. Um, but I think even, even now, um, the savvy reader could hear these biblical associations with all of the people who are opposed to Harry and start looking at his humble birth and childhood uh, through the sort of lens of biblical conflict which absolutely comes through mm -hmm. later on mm -hmm. well before we leave the shop uh, one other comment on names which I thought was interesting given the role that Borgen and Burks is playing for the Malfoys looking up the names Burke and Borgen, they both essentially mean the same thing. One from sort of an Anglo-Norman, later Irish association of Burke, and Borgen from Germany, they both essentially mean fortified town or fortified place. Mm. Protected. Mm. Somebody who is... So, so Borgen and Burks is like double fortified. Mm. Perfect place to hide things. Yeah. Or to keep yeah. them safe. 
Interesting. And well, I mean, with you saying that, one question that it did bring to mind uh, when they were talking about uh, the ministry making raids and things like that, why wouldn't they go into Nocturne Alley and just start raiding the alley, yeah. and especially Morgan and Burks? I'm sure they could find. I mean, half of the stuff that's probably on display right, right. there are incredibly dangerous items yeah. that you would not want out there in the wrong person's hands. Mm -hmm. And so, like, why are they not making yeah, raids? Yeah, I think that goes to that sort of fortified place um, image. Mm -hmm. It's the one place in the wizarding world where these items are safe. There's, like, this understanding that Morgan and Burks is a shop that's going to be permitted to operate. I don't know that in the entire canon we get any indication that Morgan and Burks is in danger of being shut down. Yeah, shut down or raided mm -hmm. by the Ministry of Magic. Well, especially not by what book five mm -hmm. when the Ministry really starts taking a turn. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, so there's there's nothing really illegal about these items. Per se. Existing, yeah, per se, or being sold even. It's just the personal ownership of certain wizards with these items. Yeah. So if you, we know that you have ties to the Dark Lord and then we find this in your home, that could be very bad for you. But Borgen and Burt, like, it's not going to be shut down. All of Nocturne Alley seems super dodgy. We see this woman selling, like, fingernails, <coughs> and, like, we're fine with that. <laughs> But there's nobody. really upset though when her nobody. tray of fingernails gets turned over. <laughs> right, she's like, shrieking. No regulations, no regulations on any of this. Right? Why do you have fingernails on a tray? What is going on here? Is this, is this a delicacy? Some kind of potion or something? Maybe. Too? Oh. Well, one other thing that I want to mention before we leave the shop is the opal necklace that we see. Oh. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I, this I believe is the necklace that oh, we yeah. see come back in book. Six, when yeah. Malfoy mm -hmm. is trying to kill Dumbledore, um, and it says here, you know, this necklace is cursed and it has claimed the lives of 19 Muggle owners to date. So first and foremost, is this necklace just sitting there, not covered? It seems like it, because it's like, don't touch it, but it's not in a case. Yeah, like, what if you don't speak English or read English or are a child? And you grab this necklace. Is it just bad luck? Coffee on mTOR. <clears throat> the buyer beware. Mm. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but then just also, I think Harry points out in book six, you know, I know that Malfoy knows about this necklace because I witnessed him looking at this necklace in book mm -hmm. two. So mm -hmm. it's just interesting. I love the way J.K. Rowling yep. comes back to this moment. Even the vanishing cabinet oh, is yeah. mentioned yeah, here. Well, it's mentioned here <laughs> and it shows up. A couple of times uh -huh. throughout the books in really fun ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the hand of glory. All of these things come back at some point. Wait, when does the, um, when does the hand of glory come back? Book I forget that. six. He's carrying the hand of glory. He throws down the Peruvian night powder, and he has this <gasps> thing that only gives light to the beholder, so he can lead the Death Eaters into the castle. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. And he has access to it because the vanishing cabinet is right there in Borgen and So Burks. pretty much, <laughs> book six is mechanisms are all here in this scene. In book two. Which book two. lines up with a theory that I have heard that the books are organized as a chiasm. Mm. Oh my god! Which is where book one and book seven 
a line, book mm-hmm. two and six, three and five, and then book four is sort of the apex. Yeah. But then there's sort of parallels conceptually and narratively all throughout sort of moving outward from the apex of book four. Yeah. I've never looked into that theory a lot. <sighs> I wouldn't put it past J.K. Rowling, but man, that would be a sophisticated yeah. Yeah. narrative structure. Well, one and seven certainly parallel. Yeah. I, th- I mean, even when we were intentionally reading chapter one for this podcast, right. I remember like the first chapter... Yeah. I just remember thinking of it in different terms and how much it paralleled chapter one of book seven, mm. how much chapter one and chapter one of books one and seven paralleled one another. And I just thought, man, that is brilliant. So even you're right. I think that, I think there's a really good chance that that's true. I think as we're, wow. as we're reading this one, we need to really keep an eye out for more book six parallels because I think, yeah. I think there's really something to that. That's amazing. Okay, are we ready to leave Borgen and Burke? We're all going to so. take a deep breath. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a mini freak a out right yeah, there. Oh was, my gosh, that's amazing. Um, okay, so we've made it out of Borgen and Burke, so now we're just in Nocturne Alley. Um, it is very creepy, very creepy here. And we see the witch with the human fingernails. And then, right in the nick of time, comes Hagrid. To rescue Harry. Grabs him by the scruff of the neck and pulls him away from the witch and out into the bright sunlight. And what was Hagrid doing there? He was looking for flesh-eaten slug repellent, he says. Which is weird that it wouldn't be something you could get in Diagon Alley. Right. Right. But It seems like an insecticide like that would be something available at any other similar yeah. kind of yeah. It seems you know, like that, but maybe lawn it's, care. Maybe it's such store. a weird no. specialty item that he's been hunting for it and couldn't find it, so he thought he'd check Diagon or thought he'd check Nocturne Alley too. Flesh eating slug attractant. Maybe you'd find sure. in Nocturne Alley. Sure, right, <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. I want to grow your own at home. Yeah. Flesh eating slug <laughs> kit. Sure, right at the little kids' toy store right next to Morgan and Burke's. You know, um, yeah, that's, so do we think he was not telling the truth? No, I think he was, but this is one of those moments where later when we're made to suspect Hagrid for something bigger, we say, hey, yeah, we did see him in Nocturne Alley and that was kind of dodgy. So maybe he was lying. Oh, yep. Because this is, this is the book where, where we, we doubt Hagrid. Right, right, yeah. Although it's interesting because I feel like Rowling will often sort of telegraph when Hagrid is hiding something because mm-hmm. he's such a bad liar. Right. And there's no, there's no indication, indication of, that, of that in the description. That's but I point. think that later Harry does this think, well, I did see him in Nocturne right. Alley. Maybe there's something to this. It becomes something to look back on yeah. with suspicion, but it's not suspicious in the moment mm-hmm. the, way the way all sorts been. of things that Hagrid does. You know, he's he's transparently lying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Harry or whatever character is talking to him sort of brushes it aside as just uh-huh. another sort of Hagrid hijinks. Mm. 
So after Hagrid pulls us back into Diagon Alley, we very quickly meet Hermione, and then we run into all the Weasleys. Everybody was right there. Um, and I think it's very interesting that Mr. Weasley fixes Harry's glasses. Yeah, I believe the movies, at least maybe it's just the second movie, portrayed Mr. Weasley slightly more like goofy and incompetent. Mm -hmm. It was nice for me to see but, him do something. Yeah, he's clearly not <laughs> incompetent. He's he's, yeah. he's he's goofy for sure, but he cares about his work and, you know, is actually good at magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say, though, we've got a sort of throwaway line um, on page 55 when Hagrid asks, how come you never wrote back to me? And mm -hmm. Harry starts explaining everything yeah. about Dobby and the Dursleys. And Hagrid's growling response is, lousy muggles. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before, <clears throat> how the sort of wizarding racism mm. is latent in a lot of ways. That they're even um, characters who are portrayed sympathetically and positively, who are good so to speak, uh, will interject these sort of racially charged comments mm -hmm. every now and then. But, especially early on in the books, we aren't paying attention to them. Right. So talk of goblins and house elves, and even Hagrid sort of growling as if their muggle status is the deciding factor in the horrendousness of the Dursleys. Yeah. Sort of attributing it to that easily identifiable feature, mm -hmm. it's there, uh, and oftentimes I think it it comes up in Hagrid's comments. Um, he becomes a mouthpiece for um, this sort of Im implicit, um, socially acceptable form of prejudice in the wizarding community. Mm -hmm. But it's it's two words, and then the and then action it, the action sweeps yeah. back to Diagon Alley. Right. Well, they all meet up, and then they go to Gringotts uh, Bank, and this was uh, the scene that we I guess alluded to in the beginning, where you know they go by the Weasleys' vault all together, and. Harry sees uh, Mrs. Weasley basically get uh, clean out their entire bank account there. I mean, just mm -hmm. scoop everything up. And then Harry goes... Not just scoop everything up, but root around the in the corners, corners yeah. to yeah. see if there's yeah. anything so hiding sad. in the shadows. Yeah. So, but, okay. <clears throat> so, how did they make this work? I mean, they, they I can't, I don't have my book in front of me, but... How much does it say they pull out like a few sickles and only one gallon? Right, right. Gallion, like how do they? How do they buy these A very these books? small pile of silver sickles and just one gold galleon. Like yeah. how? How are they buying these books? I don't. I There's don't know. got to be some kind. I mean, of we help don't. From we don't purse. see a price list for the books. <clears throat> and they also talk about getting a lot of things for Jenny secondhand. But I don't know. Like it's, it still doesn't seem like it. Can't get a wand secondhand. Get. Yeah, you can't. As far as we know, you can't get a wand secondhand. Yeah. And if the prices at the Wizarding World For of Harry real. Potter are any indication, mm. wands are not coming cheap. 
Well, and I think if you want a wand, ten gallon, ten gallons for his wand well, in book one, doesn't he? I I don't remember. But if you want a wand at Wizarding World that is more than purely decorative, yeah. and that actually does some interactive magic, it's like fifty percent yeah. markup. Yeah. So. And you better not leave it in a bathroom. Oh, yeah. Crystal did that, guys. There's a lot that. of personal narratives coming into this. <laughs> <laughs> However, again, I will say, I do not generally go to the bathroom with a wand, so excuse me for leaving it on the toilet mm. stall. That's fair. That's fair. <clears throat> before, before we get to Gringotts, I had forgotten that Hermione's parents came to Diagon Alley with her, and I actually really, really love that. And I'm sure they're super, like, awkward, yeah, ner- standing nervously at the counter. But how because cool. they're That's encountering so cool. goblins for I the know. first time. It's so cool. It's though. nervous enough going to a bank. Like they're they're really trying and they're like embracing her and as they should. She's like the best witch of her age, right? They should be trying to embrace this world, but it just it seems like it'd be really really hard that that way. Right. You know. Um. But but if they are going to the counter. To exchange money. Yeah, they're changing money. That means money. that there is actually an exchange possible between muggle money. An exchange yeah. rate. And that means there's an exchange rate. That means there's that means well, first of all, it means that Harry, you know, when he says, Oh, all I have is, you know, Harry Potter money and not uh, you know, sorry, Wizarding World money and not actually <laughs> I guess all Harry Potter's money is Harry Potter yeah. money. But um I I don't have any, you know, Muggle World money. Well, if there's an, if you can exchange, then, then yeah. yeah, you do. Um, hey, that's a good live, point. Could I've live very comfortably that. in the Muggle You could live you possibly extraordinarily comfortably, especially if you know Muggle money has been a fiat currency that's been experiencing inflation for a long time. Would, wouldn't it be like incredibly lucrative if they just invested in wizarding money, like would, economically? Like we just oh established that wizarding money. Hasn't experienced inflation in 200 years, right? At least with the price of flu powder, right? Which I guess is as good an economic indicator as I mean, the it, price of a gallon of milk, you right? Know, which sure, economists use. So, I mean, if they sort of rather than buying bonds or something, don't invest in the stock market. Just put your money in galleons, galleons yeah, and, really. and wait, you know, 50 years. Pull out that investment as your retirement fund, and who knows how much that's going to be worth. My difficulty I mean, with this is how are they able to exchange as a secret society? There's got to be somebody working undercover in the regular banks or something, the treasury or something. Oh, my gosh. There's like, like, there is at the post office. Mm-hmm. We hear that there's someone working undercover in the post office. So th- so there's got to be, like, an undercover, you know, Forex trader who's sitting there, you know, exchanging pounds and, uh, you know, galleons. galleons and dollars and euros and... You know, he's got that secret, you know, he's got all this weird magical financial math in his head. That'd be such an interesting job. Um, <laughs> uh, what was the other point I was trying to think of regarding this? I don't know. Um, so we were talked about how Harry's not actually poor in muggle money because he could exchange it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... No. All right, lost it. All right, all right cool. moving on. We're going to move along. Well, strawberry and peanut butter ice creams. Yeah. Yum. Okay, so that sounds really weird sounds to me. disgusting. But, but then I thought, well, I love strawberry jelly and peanut butter sandwiches. So, right. I mean, why did I say that so weird? Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> 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 that sounded so strange. Um, I mean, I love that together. So I would, I, I could see this being good. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if that was a an ice cream flavor at the ice cream parlor 
in at Diagonal. Florian Fortescue's. Yeah, hmm. at Wizarding World. <coughs> oh. I Surely it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive it would have been, but yeah. I did, they, did I'm sure not, they had Knickerbocker I did Glories. Not buy it. They must have had Knickerbocker Glories. Um, okay, so then we get to Flourish and Blots. An amazing surprise. Mm. It's crowded, and there's a special guest there. A special guest. Gilderoy Lockhart signing copies of his autobiography, Magical Me. And while we're there, well, he sees Harry first. I guess that's the first thing that happens. He sees Harry and pulls him up to the front for some more publicity for the Daily Prophet. This is like Harry's, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is Harry's, like, <clears throat> debut into having to deal with his public image. And this whole book is basically like Harry having to defend his reputation in some way or being accused of certain things. And it just made me think of like a celebrities. You know, they have to guard themselves against even like his foray. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even when he's in Nocturne Alley, Hagrid says something like, you don't want people to see you down there. Well, Harry specifically doesn't want people to yeah, see him mm-hmm. down there because he's getting he ready to be accused of all kinds of dark activity in this book. Mm-hmm. So this is like his first experience with like, because I'm a public figure, whether I like it or not, I have to be careful what people think or see or, you know, have this reputation to uphold. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting because from here on out, really, Harry's going to deal with a lot of publicity. Yeah. Specifically book four. Hmm. Five. Going five, on right? these early sort of Christ figure associations, um, Harry being accused of being in league with darkness is, once again, uh-huh. a sort of biblical parallel mm. to Jesus's public ministry where he is accused by the elites of working by the power of Satan, Mm -hmm. being in league with the devil. So in both situations, we've got uh, this figure from humble beginnings who uh, is sort of introduced into um, the public and then is accused, even in the midst of their goodness, with being aligned with dark powers by people in positions of power in the social structures in which they operate. I... I just I'm finding these not so obvious parallels um, in the that sort of Christ figure development uh, to to be really interesting. Can I just say how much I love uh, how Lockhart is? I guess this famous figure in the uh, the Wizarding World, and they've got just all the. Uh, the witches just uh, mm-hmm. swooning over him. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it reminds me just, you know, of like, uh, you know, fangirls are like just going yeah. crazy, like little, I don't know, the teenage witches at, you know, like concerts, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, it reminded me of the, me at the Harry Potter movie premieres all those years ago, like dressed yeah. up and excited yeah. and yeah. <laughs> but these aren't like young Witches, right? That's true. They're like most of these are, but even middle age. Even Hermione, though, kind of is like. But she's more mature. She is, but I mean, it's still like he definitely has an effect on the female population for sure. Mm -hmm. And and I guess he has an effect on the male population because all the male population is like, oh great, it's Lockhart. That's true. 
makes me want to find a figure that we can identify. And with. I was like, I was honestly he, thinking, is he the magical Harry Styles? <laughs> okay, so what he makes so. me think of is Edward Cullen from Twilight. I, I'm sorry, I know this is Harry Potter podcast, and it's almost blasphemy to bring up Twilight. But when that was like at the height of its power, mm. women from all ages, like including yes. me, at like 17 years old, up to like 40 year old women who were like freaking that, yeah. out over this fake vampire. Well, I guess he was. And also Jacob. Also, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and for the record, what is a Twilight? Trevor. <laughs> Appreciated that. Um, so uh, we're we're me, Gildor, Lockhart. Since we've already commented a lot on name meanings. Yep. Um, yeah, let's talk about that again. I think this is very interesting. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things about it is that Gilderoy is one of those names that has a very prominent false etym- etymology. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people read Gilderoy as like Gilderoy, that is to say, sort of gilded of the king. Um, sort of interpreting it in a French manner. It's actually Gaelic. And Gil de Roy means, like, son of the redhead, not gilded of the king. Mm. Uh, so, and redheaded already has kind of a lot of associations uh-huh. with not being actually so socially prominent. Right? Like, let redheaded stepchild or whatever. Right? So, it's two very strong, strong contrasts yeah, yeah. where there's this appearance of gilding of royalty mm. whatever but in reality it's kind of yeah. really not and this is what coming from a redhead readers if you didn't listen yeah. if you did not know that alex is a redhead so there's no disparaging here of right years. it's just it's just pointing <laughs> out that for this character which yeah. i know in um uh kenneth Branagh, right kenneth Branagh. um i mean he has a, a very reddish yeah. Kind of tinge to his, and that's not like a strong red. It's not a Weasley red, but um, it definitely has that kind of, you know, strawberry blonde, strawberry blondish kind of hair to it. Um, uh, anyway, it, it follows that theme of of the the grand appearance and the not so grand reality, mm-hmm. um, which is actually Lockhart. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's what's really cool about it. Lockhart is, I think, a very old Scottish name. There's a, there's a clan, Lockhart. A lot of, uh, but it even has these connotations of, like, that he's locking in hearts yep. of these women. Right. So it's still this, it is still a very interesting but name he's, choice. But, mm-hmm. yeah, he's locked in on their hearts, but he's also locking his own. own because yeah. he's clearly, he's playing with everybody. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he is not emotionally invested in people except concerning what he can get out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he plays the flirt, but he's for him it's always a calculation. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did love though that Harry very discreetly gives Ginny the stack of Yes. All of Lockhart's mm-hmm. books that he was gifted, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the the scene at Gringotts where Harry's vault is yeah. full in comparison to the Weasleys. Um, it's yet one more sort of quiet act of compassion. Mm-hmm. It allows Mr. and Mrs. Weasley to save face while at the same time benefiting them and um, not taking financial advantage of 
the the opportunities that this very strange moment of publicity afforded him. Yeah. It's also very symbolic, I think, of Harry saying, like, denying this image that Gilderoy mm-hmm. himself, it, like, he tries to build up his own image, and he is so concerned with himself, and it's Harry saying, I don't want any part in that. Yeah. I don't want to accept this gift that you've given me again, because I need to be wary of this public image that I'm putting out there for the first time. It is almost as if... Gilderoy Lockhart is very early on in Harry's education offering him glory Mm. before the time when Harry is to, quote, enter into his glory. Like, to Mm. actually do the work that he was given to do. I'm really pushing the Christ. (laughs) Yeah, wow. It's (laughs) it's pushing, but it's working, man. I think this is... I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a wilderness temptation Mm. uh where harry throughout this book is given opportunities to step into the limelight and the fanfare without doing the hard work of virtue and heroism Mm -hmm. that his calling requires Um, and every step of the way he denies it he he pushes back against it and he opts to walk the harder road Mm -hmm. even though Walking that harder road is a road that will be full of pain and shame and accusation and slander, not just in this book, but in more to follow. Mm-hmm. And he also, it's it, he had to be born into these humble beginnings in order to be equipped to put off mm-hmm. this kind of power. Because if you think of like Dudley Dursley or Draco Malfoy, right. neither of those characters could do what Harry is doing right. here because for them it's whether pleasing their father or just like self-gain whatever the reason they they are not equipped hum- with humbleness to do this most of us are well, not I equipped mean, with the humbleness to deny this Harry I mean he <coughs> says I mean I mean really that like he feels I've not done anything that's worth you know being famous and he didn't really yeah and, and he really <laughs> didn't yet. but then there's Lockhart, who he has actually, like, really done nothing. I yeah. mean, when mm-hmm. you find that out, I mean, it looks as if he has done all these great things, but really he's done nothing. He's taken what yeah. others have done. Right. So, I mean, it's actually the complete opposite of, of Harry. Yeah. And then we get to one of my very favorite scenes. The fist fight between oh, Lucius but, and it's, Arthur. But we can't go there yet. Oh, we can't what, go there Trevor? yet. Malfoy, when Ginny steps up to Harry's defense, mm-hmm. Malfoy draws Potter. You've sorry, I can't do it. You've got yourself a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Another book six parallel. Oh, oh man! Yeah. Um, and then Ron comes up and says, "Oh, it's you." Looking at Malfoy, <clears throat> bet you're surprised to see Harry here, eh? And I was like, "What? What is?" What is Ron saying? Oh Ron is still convinced yeah, that Malfoy that is Malfoy the source of the Dobby. Right. Yeah. Thing. But yet again, such an easy line to pass over mm-hmm. uh, because there's this sort of sleight of hand in the narrative where that first initial accusation that, of course, the Malfoys are the source of this. We forget about it. We're off, you know, chasing other trails. But Ron... Mm-hmm. Yet again, is sort of pointing the way that these are these are the people that 
are the source of all of the trouble that Harry's experienced so far. Now we can get no, to the fist, get fight. To the fist fight. Because <laughs> it's the best scene ever. It is. It's so good. I really, I hate that. I mean, I like the cold sort of showdown that they did in the movie, but not as much as I want to see Lucius Malfoy's hair get all messed up fighting now or fighting <laughs> Arthur. Oh, it's just so good. And so uh, Malfoy says, what's the use of being a disgrace to the name of wizard if you don't even, if they don't even pay you well for it? And Mr. Weasley says, we have a very different idea of what disgraces the name of wizard. And then <laughs> what, what sets it off is that Malfoy says the company you keep, referring to the Grangers, who are muggles, and he says, I thought your family could sink no lower. And then Arthur jumps him. And so I love that it's in defense of... Mm -hmm. Not just his family, but these muggles mm -hmm. that are, like, braving very awkward situation and, you know, probably fear to be amongst all these witches and wizards and they have no magical power at all. Yeah. Lots of fear. <laughs> I'd be terrified walking <laughs> sure. into Gringotts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Goblins so are creepy. One thing that's interesting is <laughs> earlier in the chapter, Mrs. Weasley says to Arthur, um... What does she say? Something like, or he, she says something and he says, so you don't think I'm a match for Lucius Malfoy. Yeah. But in that, I think he might be coming off of that moment like, I am a match for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like really yeah. in every way, he is a match for Lucius mm -hmm. Malfoy because Malfoy is this like dark sort of figure and what we need to stand up to this dark sort of figure is someone to come in and, like, not let it triumph. There's this, like, old quote that Matt always talks about that he loves. It's, like, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And so, like, what actually needs to happen in this moment is someone to put Malfoy in his place. And, like, Arthur is perfectly, perfectly positioned for that. And I love that he does it in front of the muggles the Hermione's parents because you know later on they're going to be in-laws which is really cool Aww. it's like you know I, I stood up for you in this moment and like what a great way to start your relationship off mm. as in-laws <laughs> but then also you know Molly says what a fine example to set for your children but I want to be this kind of parent yeah. but like I maybe I don't want to fist fight in yeah. public but <laughs> but I want to be someone who like my kids know I'm going to stand up for right. what is good or for the marginalized or the oppressed people and mm -hmm. in you know the wizarding world that is what the muggles are. So I just, I love, I love this whole scene too. <clears throat> so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in this, it's once again a scene where we have to almost separate the narrative action, which, you know, when you say, I want to be the kind of parent who fist fights in public, <laughs> you know, in... <laughs> You know, places of commerce and business. Mm. Like, that's not what you want to say. But there's, there is, underneath that big narrative um, exterior, that this is children's literature, all of the action is larger than life, mm -hmm. there is a kind of character, a courage, a mm -hmm. virtue, a standing up to what's wrong, mm -hmm. uh, being willing to lose something and sacrifice oneself in order to defend others. Um, and that is very much... Um, something to be imitated and longed after. And yeah, I think even in the less than savory um, packaging that it's given to us in the narrative, uh, 
Arthur comes out not looking like a hot-tempered man with no self-control. Mm-hmm. He's presented as somebody who is doing the right thing. Right. Right. And it's beautiful that, like, coming off of this, too, or after the fight, I think um, Malfoy, like, shoves the book back at Ginny and mm-hmm. says, this is the best your father can give you, but, like, it is the best her father mm-hmm. can give her. Like, showing her how to stand up to this kind of, mm. you know, prejudice. It's, mm. you know, your father may not be able to provide these books for you, which is what Malfoy's definition, of Lucius Andrego's ma- definition of being a good parent or being a good person. It's like what... What you, either what you were born with and didn't do anything to deserve <clears throat> or your money. Hmm. Like, n- neither of those things are actually the best thing your parent can give you. It's this, like, instilling in you these good values and virtues. Right. <laughs> what gets me, though, is that we don't have, at least from my initial reading, a moment in this account where Malfoy could have slipped the diary into the culture. Mm. Well, it's there's there's no hint of it here right. that we get in the movie. Like right. Harry kind of sees it, and right. he's like, and, "That that was more than and one." And so book. I'm sort of waiting for, you know, the the one line, or maybe a phrase, that really quickly draws our attention to something weird going on, but then distracts us, which is what she often does. Right. But no, our attention was not drawn to it at all. No. I think it, it just was. says he was still holding Jenny's old transfiguration yeah. book. He thrust it at her, his eyes glittering with malice. I guess that would be the only thing, is that his eyes are glittering with malice when he gets her a book. Okay, so is the transfiguration book... It's I, I get the idea. I get the idea that That's the diary right. is more like yeah. one of those little date books right. that's yeah. very small. Yeah. And that I just picture it now as larger because of and the movie. And we are told at the end that it was slipped into In some, yes. the transfiguration yes. book. Yes. Okay. So we, we don't see that action. We just yeah. see that his eyes are glittering with malice mm-hmm. as he, knowing what he's doing, yeah. returns this book to her and... Mm-hmm sets off this chain of events. Right. One other thing I wanted to point out is that kind of like when we were reading The Mirror of Erised and we talked about how Draco taunts Ron because he doesn't have money. Like, he always goes right for the thing that he himself, like, he he senses this lack of something in himself um, and... Draco taunts that particular thing, whatever it is that already is bothering Ron. I think Lucius does the same thing to Arthur here. Like, he he says, you know, this is the best your father can give you, or, like, obviously you're not getting paid money for overtime because look at the state of your kids and the things that you're providing for them. So he attacks, like, where it hurts a dad. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really interesting that it seems like Draco has picked up that same sort of thing. It's like... If you really want to hurt someone, you just rub salt in the wounds that are already there because mm. Arthur obviously knows, like, these Lockhart books were expensive and he's probably already feeling a little insecure about what he can or can't provide for his children. And then here comes Lucius just reminding him, like, oh, to be a good father, you need to provide these things. I, I also have to tack on to that that uh, Lucius is actually attacking Arthur because... Uh, he's actually being hurt whether he admits it or not by Arthur. You know, he's saying that like Arthur's actually pushing this bill or this this law and like they're raiding places and it's like I'm coming under fire here. I'm 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 in a little bit of danger here and so he's actually attacking Arthur perhaps 
Uh, like this is maybe a little bit of revenge that he chooses Arthur's family, you know, to give the book to, or we're, we're not sure exactly why, but. Well, uh, we do know why, because if it's Jenny who's found releasing the serpent uh, or the basilisk on muggles, then it kind of hurts Arthur, Arthur's, yeah. I always want to say author, Arthur's uh, muggle protection act. So it is, yeah. it is strategic, I think, why he picks Jenny. Okay. Or at least we're made to think that in the end. Mm-hmm. Um Well, if there's nothing else. One last thing. Oh, there is something else. So Hagrid, um, when he is trying to encourage um, Arthur, he says, um, let me find it. Oh, yeah, he says, rotten to the core, the whole family, everyone knows that. No Malfoy's worth listening to. Bad blood. That's what it is. I just thought that was really interesting phrasing because they're pure bloods. And he's Mm -hmm. like, actually, what's wrong with them is they've got bad blood running through them. Mm. And just because like pure blood and status and all of those things is really a huge theme in this book. I just thought that was really good phrasing on mm. Rowling's part. Mm. Well, they have to make their way back via flu powder, mm-hmm. which Harry says was definitely not his favorite way to travel. And that takes us out of chapter four and into our next episode, which will be Chapter 5, The Whomping Willow. We hope you will join us as we continue reading through Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Remember, in the meantime, you can reach out to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter via our handle at hpbcpodcast. But until then, friend, Mischief, Mischief Managed! managed.